Hello. So uh, before we get started, I just wanted to mention again something that was mentioned in the video announcements, and that's our City Serve Day, our first one coming up on July 15th. This is just going to be a fantastic opportunity for us to reach out to our neighbors here in this city, and it's going to be a lot of fun, so make sure you sign up with your family or your e-group. It's going to be really cool. You don't want to miss it. So uh, growing up, uh, my parents, they never had cable when I was a kid, and to me, this felt a lot like growing up without internet uh, back then. I felt cut off from the world when I went to school and I I heard my friends talking about these shows and these things that they've seen on TV. Like, I could follow along, but I just had to go off of their account of these things. So this made finding things to watch on TV tricky when I came home from school. So I ended up watching a lot of Arthur on PBS, and I can still sing the song word for word, which I'm not going to do right now. You're welcome. Uh, but when my parents were out of earshot, I would turn it to Judge Judy or Mari, and I learned a lot from them. Um, but in the summer, this got a lot trickier, because in the middle of the day, when I had nothing to do, there was no school, there was even less on TV. There was a bunch of soap operas. There was nothing except for one show, The Price is Right. And I loved The Price is Right. It was so good. And uh, the last time I watched it, I was in high school, and this was Bob Barker's final season. He had been hosting the show for over 30 years. He was like 84 years old or something. He'd been doing this a long time. And you could tell that he really regretted signing up for one last season. He was just done. He had no patience left for these contestants, and he tried to hide it, but you could really see this when he had just explained the rules of Plinko for like the thousandth time, and the person he was explaining the rules to was distracted by their friends in the audience, and he had to explain them all over again, just the look of disdain on his face. And the tone of his voice was like someone who had been on the phone with customer service for a few <laughs> hours, just getting passed back and forth between departments, having to say the same issue over and over again with no solution. It was clear that Bob was hating life, and I loved it. It was hilarious. It became the reason why I watched the show. He was so sour with these people. Now, I'm pretty sure the show works in relatively the same way today. It, it starts with a bunch of contestants, and it eventually gets narrowed down to two. And these two contestants, they face off in the Showcase Showdown. Now, if you haven't seen the show, in the Showcase Showdown, the announcer presents each contestant with a package of prizes. There's usually four or five in there. And as they're revealed, they get better and better and better. So the contestant will be standing up there, and the announcer will reveal the first prize, and it'll be something like a high-end toaster or something. It's worth 70 bucks and it gets some like golf claps from the audience. But everyone knows this is just the appetizer. Like we're just getting started. This is just kind of the teaser and we're moving on to the next one. So the announcer says, but wait, there's more. 
and he reveals the next prize. It's a seven-piece bedroom furniture set. And like the audience starts to get like a little warmed up here. And the contestant turns to his wife. His wife's shaking her head. She doesn't like it. That's okay, because there's more. Because the announcer says, but wait, there's more. An all-expense-paid trip to Europe. And now people are getting really excited about this. This is getting some hefty clapping. And the wife is like, she's nodding her head now. It's like, yes, let's go to Europe. But then there's a pause and everyone knows what's coming. It's what every contestant hopes for on The Price is Right. The announcer says, but to go to Europe, you're going to need a ride to the airport. And what better way to get there than in your new car? And then this back panel opens up and there's these two models in front of this gleaming white Lexus and everyone's just going nuts. The crowd's on their feet. They're hugging each other even though they didn't win a car, which is kind of weird. But it's even sitting on the couch in your living room, it's hard not to get swept up in the excitement of all this, which I did. And I was reminded of this because we have been journeying through Luke together. We've been following the path of Christ through scripture in the book of Luke, and the next eight verses that we are about to come to, to me, feels like the showcase showdown. These next eight verses are a collision of some of the most sublime truths that we could ever hope to hear from God's word. And as Jesus walks us through them, they just get better and better and better and better. And as I've been studying these eight verses the past couple weeks, I got swept up into it. And I've been really excited to share them with you. So let's dive in. So last week, Pastor Alan, he shared with us about how Jesus sent 72 people out into the community to share with them that the kingdom of God has come near. And they were out there to pray for them and to love them. When they return, this happens. So we're in Luke chapter 10. And we're going to start in verse 17. If you have a Bible in whatever form it may be in, you're welcome to turn with us there, but it's also up on the screen. So Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 19 say this. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. So the 72, they came back really excited because when they went out they, and they came back, they said, Jesus, you won't believe this. Even demons do what we tell them to do in your name. And this is really exciting because before Christ came to earth, people couldn't do stuff like this. It just didn't happen. If you were under demonic attack, there was nothing that you could do about it. There was nothing that your friends could do about it. You just had to wait and pray that God was going to intervene somehow because this was beyond your ability. This was beyond your level of influence. But these 72 came back and they just experienced demons submitting to their commands in Jesus' name. And they're excited, but they're also a little bit bewildered by this. 
And Jesus responds to them by saying, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, which is this epic statement. And if you close your eyes and picture this happening, it's just so cool. But Jesus said this because it's true. See, he was present in the very beginning of all things, and he witnessed Satan getting kicked out of heaven in the very beginning of all things. He saw this with his own eyes, and he recalls this memory in front of the 72 to make the point that the powers of heaven have always been more powerful than the powers of Satan. This has always been true, but what is really significant about this moment is Jesus just sent out 72 people, not angels, not kings, not prophets, not priests, people, normal people like you and like me. And when they went out, there was nothing that Satan could do to stop them. So Jesus says, my kingdom is coming and the power of my kingdom is coming and there is nothing that Satan can do to stop it. And when you go out, you go out in my authority and my power. And when this happens, there's nothing he can do to stop you either. Because the power that I have given you is greater than the power that he has. Now, there's something here that we can't miss here today. And that's this. There are times where when I feel like Jesus is asking me to do something, in my heart, my response is, okay, like I'll, I'll do it, but it must not be that important. Otherwise, he would just do it himself. He must be much better at this than I am. He's asking me to do this because he wants me to learn something or he's testing me or he wants me to grow somehow. But what these verses are telling us is that when Jesus sends us out on a mission, we go by his authority and we go by his power so that we can accomplish what he could do himself which means when God sends us out, it's not just to test us. It's not just so that we can grow or learn somehow. Sometimes Jesus asks us to do something simply because he needs it done. And you are the one that he has chosen to do it. And these 72, they came back really excited because they had just experienced firsthand the power of the kingdom surging forward and just brushing aside anything that Satan was trying to do to stop it. Now, in World War II, we fought in a battle called the Battle of the Bulge. We had landed in Normandy and we had retaken France and we were pushing towards Germany when all of a sudden Hitler launched a surprise attack with over 200,000 troops. And what this did is they ended up retaking 70 miles of ground that we had taken away from him. And they held their line right there. And for the next month, we would be fighting at this line. Over a million troops would be involved in this battle. But after a month of fighting, we started to see the line begin to recede back towards Berlin, which is a really big deal because Hitler had gambled everything that he could spare in this battle. And the best that he had wasn't enough to stop us. And in that moment, millions of Americans realized we're going to win this thing. The words that Jesus has just shared to these 72 people are the spiritual equivalent of telling a cancer patient, you're in remission, you're going to beat this thing. And that kind of hope in a fight like this is invaluable. 
And I can't imagine the hope that was stirred up in these 72 when they witnessed what they just did and heard the reason why. But then Jesus says, but wait, there's more. Because in verse 20, it says this. Jesus said, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He says, don't rejoice in this experience that you just had with some demons. Rejoice in the fact that your names are written in heaven. Now, I really don't think that Jesus is scolding the 72 for rejoicing in what they experienced. What they experienced was really good. They just saw demons submitting to Christ's name. And they weren't prideful or arrogant when they came back. They said, Jesus, look what happened in your name. I think they had an understanding that there was something bigger than themselves going on here. What I think Jesus is doing is showing them that what they experienced isn't even the best part of the bigger picture here. He says, you think that's worth celebrating? Well, get this. Your names are written in heaven See, Jesus had just explained that the power of the kingdom cannot be stopped by the power of the enemy. But here he's saying, you are a part of this kingdom. You are citizens of it. Your names are written in heaven. And those words meant so much to the 72. And this is why. What Jesus is referring to here is what the Bible calls the book of life. Now, When God writes something down, it's always a really big deal. He doesn't jot things down flippantly and just forgets about them. When God writes something down, he's establishing this is and this forever will be. The Ten Commandments are probably the most well-known example of this. Moses goes up on a mountain. God writes down commandments on tablets, and he hands them to Moses, and he says, this is the law by which you will lead my people the law that we as believers still follow today. This is and it forever will be. Now, books themselves, they in the Bible hold a great symbolic value too. In Revelation, books are going to be a big uh, thing that's used in the carrying out of the end times. And one of the books that's referenced in Revelation is the book of life. And the book of life is God's ledger in which he has written down the name of every person who has put their trust in him and who will be welcomed into heaven. Now, in the Old Testament, the thing that saved you back then is the same thing that saves us today, faith. But the thing was, back then, before Christ, you couldn't put your faith in Jesus because Jesus wasn't around yet. And God wasn't telling anybody that he was going to use his son, Jesus, to do this. So before Christ, the only thing that you could put your faith in was that God did have a plan for salvation, which he did speak about to the prophets in the Old Testament. But nobody knew exactly how he was going to do it. So back then, you couldn't say to someone, because you've put your trust in Jesus, you are saved. And this can never be taken away because no one knew who Jesus was yet. But back then, one of the things that you could say that came close to that kind of assurance of salvation was to say, your name is written in the book of life. Your name is written in heaven. It is and it forever will be. And when I think of the book of life, I think of something that my wife and I saw in Washington, D.C. 
We went on vacation there last summer before we had a baby. And now that we have a baby, it feels like that was the last vacation we will ever go on. (laughs) And we look back on it longingly. And I know that's not true, but that's how it feels right now. Um, So when we were in Washington, D.C., by far the most beautiful building that we saw, and that's saying something in D.C., was the Library of Congress. And to get inside the Library of Congress, you walk up these massive stone steps and you walk into this doorway, into this enormous room. And this room, like on all four sides of the room are these pillars that reach all the way up to this high ceiling and they arch and they hold up this huge stained glass ceiling and light is just pouring into this room and just causing it to glow. And on every square foot of the ceiling and the walls are these beautifully vibrant mosaics depicting the greatest authors and writers and philosophers that the world has ever known. Literally, it seemed like every detail of this room was dedicated to depicting something that has changed the world forever. It's humbling to stand in this room. But if you walk straight forward, as soon as you come in, you come to a display case. And in this display case is the giant Bible of Mainz. This is a Bible that dates back to the 14th century. It's about two feet tall. And when it's opened, it's about three feet wide. And this Bible was painstakingly written by hand by a scribe who dedicated over a year of his life to do this. And it is exquisite. Each and every letter written in Latin is perfect, like it's been typed. And the first letter on each page is huge, and it's embellished, sometimes with like gold leaf uh, put onto it. And when you see it, you're immediately struck by all the time and intentionality that must have gone on into transcribing this copy of the Bible. And you're also struck by how much more valuable this is compared to something that was printed or that's on a Kindle or on your iPhone. This took work. This is old. This took effort. This took intentionality. But compared to the book of life, it's about as valuable as a notepad. And the book of life has written every single name of every believer in all time. Now, I have to be honest with you. There are times where I feel like the idea of me going to heaven seems a little bit too good to be true. Like, it seems unreal. Now, I have full faith that because I've put my trust in Christ, heaven is where I'm going when I die. But I can't help but feeling like somehow it's just a little bit untangible. Like, it feels like I've booked my stay, but I never got a confirmation email, you know? Like, I can't print it out and hold it in my hand. It's like, okay, like, it's sealed. We're, we're in business here. Like, I don't know if you've ever gone to someone's house, and when you're leaving, they say, come on over anytime. The door's open. I always question that. It's like, why are you leaving your door open? That's not safe, and there's bugs, and... but. If I just came over at any time unannounced, that would really be okay with you? And when it comes to heaven, it kind of feels like I've been invited to just drop by at any time. It's like, really? I could just die at any time? And it's okay for me to show up outside of heaven? The door is open? But knowing that there is a book in heaven as we speak right now, 
And inside that book has been written every letter of my name. And one day I will stand in front of that book and the book will be opened and my name will be found and it will be read aloud. That feels more tangible to me. That gets me excited to die, I guess. I don't know, but it gets, it gets me really excited. It's like, okay, this is legit. Like God's written my name down. And to the 72, this meant the world to them. The things that Jesus is sharing with them should be blowing their minds. And I don't know if it did or if this is something we can only see in hindsight, but Jesus just shared with them, my kingdom is coming and there is nothing that Satan can do to stop it. And you are a part of this. You are citizens of of this kingdom, your names are written in heaven. And after he gets done sharing this, something incredible happens. It's verses 21 and 22. It says this. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. What's happening in these two verses is so deep. I feel like I could spend my life trying to reach the bottom of it and never find it. This is so good. In front of the 72, Jesus bursts into joy. And in the Holy Spirit, in a very public prayer to God, he thanks the Father that now the time has come to reveal this secret. Not to the super religious, not to the super intelligent, but to anyone. Anyone who has the childlike faith and humility to hear it. And then, in front of the 72, for anyone there who did have the faith and humility to hear it, Jesus shared the secret that the Father is introducing the Son to the world. And the Son is going to introduce the world to the Father and they will have an intimate relationship with him and the son that they had never had before. See, because, see, before Jesus came to earth, Jesus and God, Jesus the Father and the Son, they had this relationship that nobody else had access to. They had this intimate knowledge and knowingness of each other that nobody else did. But when the Father introduced the Son to the world, When God sent Jesus to earth, Jesus showed us that through him, we have access to a relationship with God that only he had had access to. We have access to a relationship with the Father and the Son that we didn't know was possible before Christ. Now, here is what is so remarkable about this moment. The secret that Jesus is talking about here is that God was going to use and did use his son Jesus to carry out his plan of salvation and not just save us, but adopt us into his family. But scripture says that this was a secret that was kept from the foundations of the earth. 
From the beginning of time, this is something that God knew about and kept secret. And 1 Corinthians said he did this because if we found out this information too soon, we never would have crucified Jesus, which God wanted to happen. So for this reason, when Jesus came to earth and started his ministry, he was very secretive about his identity. He really didn't want it getting out that he was the Messiah that the Old Testament Testament prophets had been talking about, and he didn't want anybody to know that he was the son of God. We're in chapter 10 right now, but just in chapter 9, Peter uh, confessed that Jesus was the Messiah in front of the 12 disciples, and Jesus strictly told them to not tell anybody what they just heard. And soon after that, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain, and God appears, and he says, this is not just the Messiah, this is my son. Listen to him. And it says that the three of them kept silent about this too. So up to this point, the largest group of people that Jesus had shared any of this information with was the 12 disciples. And whenever he shared any of this to anyone, he would always follow it with a strict charge to tell no one. But something happens here in front of the 72. It says that Jesus rejoiced. And that word rejoice is a special Greek word that means something different than just your normal standard version of rejoice. This word means to be so overcome with joy that you cannot help but express it outwardly. And so being overcome with joy, Jesus in the Holy Spirit thanks God publicly in front of these 72 that finally the time has come where these secrets can start being revealed, not to a specific group of people, but to anyone with the faith and the humility to hear it. The Father and the Son have come down to embrace the world in an intimacy that they had never known before. This news is so good that Jesus rejoiced. Now, over a year ago on Mother's Day, Allie and I knew that we had just found out that we were pregnant, but it was too soon uh, for us to tell anybody. But on Mother's Day, we always have a barbecue with our family. So we're sitting there with our family, and it was so odd for the two of us to have this knowledge that this was Allie's first Mother's Day, and that our family was in the presence of a brand new life that was going to bring them so much joy, and they had no idea, because it wasn't time to tell them yet. But when the time came, we were waiting for Allie's sister to, to come home from Texas. And when she came back, it was time. And we told our family, and when we shared this news with them that we were pregnant, they rejoiced. But so did we, because the two of us had been keeping this secret for so long, a secret far too good to be kept hidden. And for us to actually let it out just filled us with joy because finally the time had come where we can share this with everybody. And the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are so filled with joy because finally the time had come for them to start revealing these secrets to everyone. And when Jesus did, he did not tell them to keep quiet about it. And the most beautiful part to me about this is, Jesus is so overcome with joy, he lets his guard down. 
And for a moment, the veil is lifted just enough where you can see that he is the son of God. The son and the Holy Spirit and the father embrace each other with joy. And aloud, Jesus says the words, my father. What is happening in front of the 72 is beyond words. And what's so cool is this stuff, it applies to us too. He shared with them, your names are written in heaven. The Father and the Son have come down to embrace the world towards them. Secrets are being revealed that have been kept hidden since the beginning of time. And in case any of the disciples missed it, Jesus pulls them aside and he says this, Verses 23 and 24. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Samuel, David, Isaiah, these men and countless others filled with faith knew that God was going to send something, to send someone to rescue them. And they all longed to see it. They all longed to hear it, but it didn't happen in their lifetime because it wasn't time yet. But In case there is any misunderstanding, Jesus pulls the 12 disciples aside and he says, these things that I've just been talking about, these things that your forefathers have talked about for generations, they are happening right now. There is no more waiting. This handful of fishermen got to experience what countless kings and prophets longed to see. And we get to see it too. And Jesus didn't want the disciples to miss it. And he doesn't want us to miss this either. Now I can understand why the disciples might miss this because Israel, they have been waiting for centuries for this to happen. And sometimes when you wait for something long enough, you get so used to waiting, you're not prepared for it when it actually comes. But we miss it for a whole different reason and just as easily. We miss it because we were born into it. And sometimes when you're born into a blessed reality, it's hard to know just how blessed you actually are. I know that I personally take way too much for granted. I didn't grow up rich, but I've never known what it's like to not know where my next meal is going to come from. I was not at all the first person in my family to go to college. That wasn't a huge challenge for me. When, because I was born in the United States, I have never known what it's like to live without education or police, or electricity, or running water, or streets, and roads, and bridges, or sewer systems, or, or libraries, or, or garbage trucks. Now, was it wrong that I was born in the United States? No, not at all. But it would be wrong for me to miss that each and every one of these things is an enormous blessing 
that most of the world does not get to partake in. Now, based on what Jesus just shared, here are some other things that I take for granted. I don't know what it's like to live in a time where there is nothing that I or anyone else can do against a demonic attack on my life. I don't know what it's like to live in a time where I don't know when or how God is going to rescue us. I just have to have faith that he will someday. I don't know what it's like to live in a time where I have to try to follow God without the Holy Spirit living inside of me. Now, was it wrong that I was born after Christ? No, but it would be wrong for me to miss that each and every one of these realities is an enormous blessing. Blessed are those who see and hear what we do. Kings and prophets before us long to see these things and never saw it and long to hear the things that we hear and never hear it. We are blessed. These are truths far too good to overlook. And that's kind of the point of all this. See, when Jesus sent out the 72, he sent them out into the community to share with the world that the kingdom of God has come near. This is the best news that anyone could have ever hoped for. But when they came back, they were excited about casting out a few demons. They were missing the bigger picture here. They had just been told they want a new car, and they came back excited about the toaster. And so Jesus, he tries to like set their perspective right. And he says, don't rejoice that demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, most of us know that joy is different from happiness. Happiness is this fleeting emotion. It comes and goes, usually based on circumstances, sometimes not. But joy is different. The Bible talks about joy as being the thing that grounds us. Joy is the thing that gets us through all circumstances, the good and especially the bad. Joy is a lot like hope, but it's even more solid and foundational than that. So when Jesus is telling the 72 what to rejoice in, he's not talking about simply expressing joy because rejoicing isn't just expressing joy. To rejoice is to intentionally choose where your joy is going to come from. Like picture a a wood-burning furnace in the middle of a living room. If the heat that is coming off of this furnace is joy, rejoicing is the act of putting wood into that furnace. When you put wood into a furnace, it produces heat When you choose what to rejoice in, those things produce joy. Now, when the 72 came back, they were filled with joy in this experience that they just had. And there's nothing wrong with that. What they experienced is worthy of joy. But for those of us who have ever had a big spiritual experience, we know that the joy that comes from those things is real and it's good and it's intense. But when we come back from the worship concert, when we come back from the summer camp or the retreat, when we come back from the incredible worship service on Saturday or Sunday, the joy that comes from those things doesn't last as long as we would like them to. 
If you've ever thrown a wad of newspaper into a fire, you know that it burns really well and it produces heat just the same. It just burns really quickly. So when Jesus is cautioning the 72 of what to rejoice in, he's doing that because he knows this experience that they just had, it's going to burn up quickly. In fact, some of them may have returned home feeling just as they did before they even left. So instead, Jesus says, rejoice in things that last eternally. Rejoice the things that don't come and go like experiences. Rejoice in things that never change. Your names have been written in heaven. The Father and the Son have come down to embrace you in a relationship that we couldn't have had before Christ. Secrets are being revealed that were kept secret from the beginning of time. You are witnessing things that countless kings and prophets before you longed for. It is so important that we are careful about what we choose to rejoice in. Because if we count on big spiritual experiences to be the only source of our joy, what happens when those things burn up quickly and then the unexpected occurs? The closeness that you felt with God at that retreat was real and it was good but it won't burn long enough for the breakup next spring. The life-changing experience that you had at summer camp was just that. It was life-changing, truly, but it won't burn long enough for parents splitting up in the winter. The song that spoke to your soul at church on Sunday was so good, but it won't burn long enough for chemo on Thursday. The encouragement that you received in soaking prayer in March was exactly what you needed, and God wanted you to have that, but it won't burn long enough for the unexpected death in the family in August. Something I do not have to convince you of is that life is hard, and it gets cold, sometimes very quickly. And when that happens, we cannot afford to be caught without joy. But in these eight wonderful verses, Jesus has provided us with enough fuel to keep our fires burning, regardless of the circumstances. Our names have been written in heaven. The Father and the Son have come down to embrace us in an intimate relationship that at one time only they had shared with each other. We are seeing things and hearing things that countless kings and prophets and generations longed to see and longed to hear, and we get to see them. We get to hear them. The kingdom has come. Salvation has arrived. We are not just saved. We are adopted. We are blessed. So what does your joy come from? What is burning inside of you? Let's pray. I just want to give you a few moments uh, before we pray, just to yourself, to, to think through a couple questions. Um, thinking back to the imagery of that wood-burning furnace, uh, just imagine that your heart and your soul is that furnace. The, 
invite God to, to speak into this question as you think about it yourself. So here's the question I want to ask. If your heart and your soul is a furnace, what burns inside of it? What is in there that is producing joy? Maybe call to mind something that you're going through right now, something that you feel like is just sucking you dry. Maybe you're feeling worried or anxious or or depressed or, or lonely or something that just feels like it's just taking it all out of you. Was there something that stood out to you from the verses that we looked at that might change or or reorder your perspective on those things? Is there something that you could put into that furnace and start burning again? Father, we come to you right now, some of us feeling empty, some of us feeling dry, some of us feeling burnout. God, these things that Jesus shared to the 72 and these things that Jesus shared with us, they are too good for us to miss. But as hard as we try, sometimes we miss it. So Father, I pray, we pray that in this moment, as we begin to worship you, that the truth that's buried into these words would just stand out and we would just strip away all the extravagance and all the fluff. We wouldn't come with this expectation of of something big, something different, but we would come taking a good, solid look at these things that have always been true. We pray that during this time of worship, we would begin to place inside of our heart, inside of our soul, things that will keep us burning through what we're going through right now. Things that will keep us burning through the cold and through the dark. So we worship you right now and we pray this in your name, Father. Amen.